See, I think leadership is where the 21st century executives, you know, using a Wayne Gradsky analogy, they've got to be skating to where the puck's going. And you've got to be managing people, not things. The things keep changing. And so I view leadership in a mastery model. You've got to become a craftsman at it. You know, you apprentice, you study, you learn. Most of the time you do it by the seat of your pants, let's be honest. But I think it's imperative that you really embrace the notion of being a brilliant leader to get the most out of people because the functions and the things you learn and the tasks you learn are so different. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and this is episode 101. As we begin the second century of the SIDCast, we return to first principles and leadership. And it's my pleasure to have as my guest today in this episode, Doug Conan. And Doug is, well, he was a Fortune 500 CEO, Campbell Soup. Mm-hmm, good. And he is a New York Times bestselling author, He's listed on many of the top leadership speaker and innovator awards, and even one of the most influential authors in the world. He is the only former Fortune 500 CEO that has successfully transitioned to really making an impact in the kind of guru world, in this case, leadership, something I happen to know a lot about. And so it was such a treat for me to have Doug with me in this episode. Doug and I have known each other for years way back when I even interviewed him for my book on super bosses. And I think he even mentions that somewhere in here. And I followed his work and read his books and he's read mine as well. So we're kind of speaking the same language in some ways, but he's just got such a deep practical side to his work and his understanding that uh, it's something that I thought would be really interesting to bring to everyone in this episode. So today is all about a deep dive on leadership with CEO turned leadership guru, Doug Conant. Three things we're going to talk about, three things that will make you want to listen, how to learn from failure. Everybody talks about failure. I'm doing a new Coursera course, actually a series of courses, and one of those courses, I dig into failure and resilience and fear of failure and all those types of things that all of us know are unfortunately all too real and that we all need to deal with. Well, Doug is not shy about talking about this topic, even his own personal examples as a well-known CEO. And learning from failure starts with one basic principle. You got to admit something went wrong. I know that's not the favorite topic for a lot of people, but you have to acknowledge it didn't work. Otherwise, how are you going to possibly learn something? And the other thing about learning from failure that I know to be true is it's hard work. You got to really want it. You got to do it. It's not automatic. It's not kind of what people say. They just kind of, you know, snap your fingers and boom, all of a sudden you made a mistake. You failed. You're going to learn. No, you got to make the effort. You got to do the work to make that happen. And it's not nearly as easy as people seem to think or seem to say. That's number one. Number two, how to develop world-class talent. Of course, that's a lot of what I've spent the last 10 years of my own research on that led to the Superbosses book. And in fact, one of the CEOs I profile in the book, his name is Michael Miles, and Doug Conant was a protege of Michael Miles. So it's pretty interesting that the circle gets closed in that respect. 
Doug has had a bunch of people that have worked for him that have also gone on to tremendous success. We talk about that. We talk about what it takes to develop talent. And for everyone out there listening about not just how to do this, but how to advance your own career, how to find the types of people that can help you get to the next stage. That's kind of a reverse engineering to this point about developing talent. If you know how to develop talent and you start looking for people and then you understand how people do that, or some leaders in particular do that, you start knowing what to look for in your bosses and potential bosses, and that becomes pretty, pretty important. And number three, keeping with a theme that's been up in the SIDCAST for a while, and Philippe Bourguignon just a few weeks ago said it so well. He talked about zigzag, you know, careers need to be zigzag. They need to be meandering. If you just follow a straight line, you miss a lot. And we've talked about crafting a career. And so many of my guests, famous and not so famous, have crafted their careers. Well, here's Doug Conan, who, as I said, has gone to the top of two different, though related, but two different career tracks as an executive, as a CEO, and as a leadership speaker, writer, author consultant, advisor, and guru. And that's pretty cool. As I said, not a lot of people have done that. So lots to talk about. A real pleasure for me to have Doug with me in the SIDCAST. And I know you're going to enjoy this episode. Welcome to the SIDCAST. This is Sid Finkelstein. And I'm here today with Doug Conan. Hi, Doug. Hi, it's great to be with you. Thank you for taking some time. And as I just described in my introduction, you've worn a lot of hats and done a lot of really cool things. So there's really a lot I want to talk to you about. But I kind of want to start at the beginning, when you were growing up, and whether you had any CEOs or leadership gurus in your family. No, not at all. I guess we all come from an interesting family, Sid, but I came from a middle-class suburban family, sort of like a Wonder Years kind of family in Glencoe, Illinois. Ordinary beginnings. My father came back from World War II, and just like in the movie The Graduate, where someone put their arm around the character and said... I have one word for you, plastics. My father went into the plastic packaging business in the 50s and then started his own little entrepreneurial company in the 60s and ran it for quite a while outside of the city of Chicago. And so he was an entrepreneur and a salesperson. And that was my experience with the corporate world. Did you uh, ever work for him, like a summer job or something like that? I did an internship. I was at the Kellogg School, which, you know, I'm so old, it wasn't the Kellogg School then. It was the Graduate School of Management Science at Northwestern, and I did a project for him as an intern on some cost accounting work, which was really good because I discovered I never wanted to be a cost accountant, but it was a good experience at the time. So I was walking the floor of this relatively small plant every day for a couple months and had a feel for what the rhythm of that life was like, but that was the only experience. Other than that, no, I had a great interest in sports. I was an oldest. I still am an oldest. And so I was always looking up to people above me for role models. I grew up in the land of Lincoln. I grew up in Illinois. So Abraham Lincoln, you learned about Abraham Lincoln in first grade and the stovepipe hats and the drawings you would do. So I was fascinated with Lincoln. Then I became fascinated with American presidents. Then as I went on to get my political science degree at Northwestern, I became fascinated with world leaders in political science beyond just the U.S., Then as I went on to graduate school, I started to study business leaders. My favorite professor there was Ram Sharan. Ram challenged me to be a student of it. And so I started looking at all the business leaders and I studied them. So I found that interesting territory, but I didn't have any particular role models. Yeah. Well, that's unusual to be studying leaders and then becoming 
a leader yourself for a long period of time. My experience has been, yeah, there'll be some role models in the sense of people you know about, or and Lincoln would be a pretty good example. But actually to take a bit more of a, um, I don't know, of a research or a studious approach to it is a bit more, it's a bit unusual. You also said something else that's kind of interesting, which is you discovered you didn't want to do any cost accounting <laughs> when you do that project. I've always found that having these experiences, even if they don't work, and of course, some of them are not going to work, would be the rare person that everything they touch and everything they do, they love and they want to keep going further. It's kind of pretty valuable. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. It's mission critical because what we do is we course correct, right? Mm-hmm. And we say, well, this doesn't work. What should I look at? And I'm constantly looking at what's working, what's not. What can I do differently? How can I be a little better tomorrow than I was today? How can I grow? For me, it's what makes life mm-hmm. so interesting. Yeah, it's such an intriguing thing. You know, there is some research on learning and how when you learn a variety of different things, there's actually a big upside to that. I mean, I want to ask you about this because. In a way, it gets to this generalist versus specialist debate. There was a pretty good book about that maybe a year or two ago also, right? And so some of the early research on learning would talk about how important it was to have this variety of experiences that we're talking about, implying that while it's not a bad idea to become an expert, it's not quite as important. I don't know if I'm overstating the findings there, but it's not far off. What's been your experience in terms of breadth versus depth, generalist versus specialist? I'm going to start with someone I know you know of, Carol Dweck at Stanford. And for me, where I start is the idea of a growth mindset. And for me, it's about growth. It's not just my growth. It's growth in contribution to others. And so I'm always looking through the lens of growing and contributing in a more substantial way. The book I suspect you're referring to sort of champions a generalist perspective in the sense that the specialists that he studied tended to have very narrow views of the world and weren't able to function outside of those narrow views. Mm -hmm. And what I'm seeing in the workplace and in large organizations is you've got to be fluent laterally, not just vertically. And so I think there's something to be said about being fluent across disciplines adequately. There's a threshold probably, right? Being fluent across disciplines. And the other observation I would make, when you talk generalists, you tend to think subject matter. I don't think that's the issue. I think it's all about people. And I think in a way that's a vertical and a horizontal. Because as a CEO, look, you're crazy if you think you're going to know everything. And so you've got to be able to have a collection of people that know a lot about the subject matter expertise. And then you've got to be incredibly fluent at orchestrating the enterprise to optimize your effectiveness, calling on all those talents. That's the way I think about it. Yeah, this point you're bringing up, Doug, has really a lot of implications for a lot of people. But the one that pops in my mind are people early in their careers as they think about how to navigate a career. And as you know, there's an MBA population where one of the big options is going to a consulting firm first, maybe staying there, but typically for a period of time, which will give you a degree of, uh, let's call it more generalist uh, skills, or at least a variety of specialist skills versus going into an individual company, you start to deep dive. And I know every one of our students thinks about that and tries to figure out the best way to manage that. And the fact that consulting firms typically offer a 30 or 40% premium compensation helps tip the scales a little bit, but not everybody goes that way. Let's go down this path just a touch more. And I want to go back to your kind of the early days because we're talking about expertise to some extent. And I'm really interested in that idea and what the risks are, especially today. So no one's going to say it's a bad idea to be an expert. Nobody's going to say it's a bad idea to really understand some phenomenon really, really well. But then because of the pace of change, because everything is moving, 
because of even AI and global competition, other things, I guess there's a much higher depreciation rate to that knowledge base than there's ever been before. What's your take? Well, here's my thought about it. I think that's absolutely right. There is a greater depreciation rate, but I tend to view it a different way. And let's step back first. Wherever you have excelled or I have excelled or anyone listening to us today has excelled, they've been very intentional about it. They've worked hard at it in a very focused way as a professor or a podcaster, a writer, as a business executive, whatever. It's hard to argue against intentional focused learning on a topic and trying to become really good at it. That's hard to argue with. I tend to apply that to leadership. See, I think leadership is where the 21st century executives, you know, using a Wayne Gradsky analogy, they've got to be skating to where the puck's going. And you've got to be managing people, not things. The things keep changing. And so I view leadership in a mastery model. You've got to become a craftsman at it. You know, you apprentice, you study, you learn. Most of the time you do it by the seat of your pants, let's be honest. But I think it's imperative that you really embrace the notion of being a brilliant leader to get the most out of people because the functions and the things you learn and the tasks you learn are so different. The other thing I would observe is with all the hierarchies breaking down from the old militaristic models to flat models, it used to be when I started, if I didn't know what to do, I went and asked my boss how to do it, okay? Anybody who's listening to this podcast, if they go ask their boss how to do it, their boss won't know exactly, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe in consulting where it's still a small intact team and the boss can help you. But my observation is the bosses don't know anymore. So the bosses have to be incredibly good at managing the people because they can't manage the tasks. So the challenge from my perspective for the 21st century executive is to be really fluent in leadership. Of course, that's what I believe because that's what I've been trying to do for 40 years, both practicing it and studying it. And it's helped. You know, just like it's hard for me. I mean, I have some friends, you've interviewed a lot of people and some of them have been wildly successful. But the people that I know that have been wildly successful in an enduring way Mm -hmm. have kept growing and learning and getting better and better in some kind of disciplined way. It may be their discipline, not mine. But I think the leaders of today going forward are going to have to be really good at managing organizations where they don't understand the tasks and realize they never will and can move the organization forward. I like what you're saying about dedication, about working really hard. I mean, so many people work crazy hard, especially in a COVID and post-COVID world. It's never been more intense. I once gave this little nugget of advice to uh, my nephew, which is that you should never get outworked. And he took it to heart, but I think I may have been wrong because not about quantity. It's about how smart you're working. Of course, if you're not working enough, then it doesn't matter how smart you are. It's not good enough, but it's about smart. But here's the question I want to ask you, because sure. if it's the case that your boss doesn't really know the answer, doesn't know what to do about a problem, why do we need so many bosses? <laughs> and a lot of people now are cheering with that question <laughs> as they think about their own boss. Well, you know, I was talking to Bill George the other day about this. And Bill just wants to blow up all the hierarchies. He wants to turn the organizations upside down and have all frontline workers running the world. I'm exaggerating a bit. Mm -hmm. And I agree with him. We have too many bosses. And we look at certain sectors in hospitals, administration, where the administrations have exploded, but we have needs for doctors and nurses. So there are sectors where it feels out of control in terms of number of managers. I think that's true, but ultimately, we've got to orchestrate large-scale activities. 
And we can see what it's like when you don't have adequate managers. Look at the pandemic and the rollout of the vaccinations. Yeah. You know, we've got three companies trying to roll out vaccinations in 50 different states with hodgepodge distribution channels, inadequate management because nobody knows how to do it. And with earnest effort, everybody's trying. Mm -hmm. Amazing what we're doing, but it's obvious we don't know what we're doing. And for the most part, this large-scale change requires good managers. You know, Gallup did a study, Gallup's latest book, uh, Jim Clifton at Gallup. You know, it's not any different with all of his employee engagement work. His book is It's the manager. I don't think we need as many managers, but we need better managers. And every time you look at employee engagement, you see people join a company and they leave a manager. And so managers are essential and we just need to make them better. I think the first notion of get rid of them first is risky because then you risk your ability to run the enterprise. It's a tricky subject. It's kind of like, what is a treatment for bad or insufficient management? Do you go to surgery and remove them, or do you try to do some type of treatment? And you're saying the treatment. No, I'm saying both. I'm saying there's probably a quartile that's got to go, and then there's probably a quartile that doesn't need a lot of help, and then there's probably the two quartiles in the middle that need Mm -hmm. to be helped Mm -hmm. to be better. Mm -hmm. Why do you think there are so many managers that are not I don't want to say bad because that's, of course, there are some bad managers, but most are trying to do the best they can. But, you know, you talk to a lot of people and you said it yourself, you know, people leave because of their manager and happens a lot. Why is this such a mess? I mean, there's so many people like you and I and lots and lots of others and all the business schools in the business of trying to help people become better managers. We're failing. The failure rate is too high and it has been that way for some time. If there was an easy answer, we would know it and we wouldn't be talking about this. So what we're about to talk about is opening, let's acknowledge we're opening a can of worms here, but we can deal with the worms. The first thing is the world is changing at an accelerated rate. So you become proficient at something and then it changes again. And that has impacts on all enterprises, either for-profit, not-for-profit or government. So the rate of change is a big issue. The next issue I think is that we're starting with a deficit of good managers. I've had 28 bosses, wow, direct bosses in my career. You should have been a professor right from the start. You don't get to work for anyone. Yeah, well, that's your loss. What can I say? (laughs) Uh, But anyway, I've had 28 bosses and they've had bosses. So between my boss and my boss's boss, who I was seriously exposed to, I've had 56 bosses. Three were good. Three were good. There were some that were pretty good, and most of them were fair to Midland, and there were a much larger percentage were not good, okay? And I think back to a friend of mine who was running a sales organization at the time, and he had this, he said to the whole organization, I'm sitting in the audience, and he said, there are 10 two-letter words that are going to speak to the way I recommend you approach your own development. 10 two-letter words. And everybody's saying, I wonder what the, you know, he had the blank lines underneath and So then he put the words up and the words were, if it is to be, it is up to me. I think the first thing a leader has to do is they have to take ownership over this process. If you are an inspiring leader, if you're counting on somebody else to help you, you got a problem because that's slippery slope, right? So I think they're not a lot of good managers. Things are changing at a great rate. And I don't think people are comfortable taking ownership over their own development and learning. What I see is if people do take ownership, they get better. If they just go to classes on time management and priorities and 
running a better meeting, if they're just passive participants, they don't get better. So I think in my experience, if we as leaders create conditions where people are challenged and encouraged to learn in a way that speaks to them and helps them advance their agenda, they get better. If we just send them to classes, I think that's a slippery slope. So I think individuals need to take more ownership. I mean, that's a positive message because it implies they can learn and they will get better if they make the effort. Almost everyone will, which is very positive, I think. You've seen a lot of students, when they're all in, they learn, grow, and they find a way to hit stride. But it's not just about being all in, but I think that's where you have to start. That's the cost of entry. And then you've got to do it smartly, as we were talking about just a few minutes ago. It's not just enough to be all in and work hard. You've got to make some wise choices. Okay, that's great. Let's go back. What was your first job after your MBA? I went to work for one of my three great bosses, the first guy I ever had. He was my brand manager at General Mills. His name was Steve Sanger. He went on to be the chairman CEO of General Mills. Yes, he did. And he was a huge fan of Steve's. And I was not a good, I was slow. And, you know, when you do your uh, performance reviews, typically in a large company, your boss signs the review and then your boss's boss has to sign the review and maybe make a statement that basically says, I've looked at it. So Steve reviewed me as being marginally satisfactory or something like that. Like I was getting along and I'll explain that maybe in a minute, but Steve's boss, who was not one of the best bosses I ever experienced, had one sentence. He said, you should be looking for another job. That was my first performance review in my life written. I wish I still had it. And I wish he had worked for me at some point later on, that individual. It was hard, but I learned. I had a great role model with Steve. And I was blessed because I carried that role model with me for the rest of my career, knowing that there was always a better way than maybe what I was experiencing in the moment. I had been an athlete. I was hoping to play professional tennis. So I was an individual contributor. I was a, you know, I paid for my education, undergrad and graduate school at Northwestern. And it was my life along with my schoolwork. And so all I, I had been an individual contributing guy, just performing on a tennis court of all places. So when I got to work in a large company with all these people wearing suits, it was like, you know, I, my first day of work, I started work in a khaki suit with a bright yellow shirt, a big wide madras tie, brown earth shoes, and I had an afro and I had a tan line across my head where I had had uh, the headband headband, and I had a Fu Manchu mustache. Everybody walking around that building was in a three-piece pinstripe suit with a white shirt and a red tie. Within three months, so was I. But I was a fish out of water there, and I was a very slow starter. But I'm a strong finisher. So what made Steve Sanger such a great boss? I felt he genuinely cared about me. And the more he cared about me, the more I cared about his agenda and about meeting his needs. I would say that's where it started with me. He was genuinely interested in what I was doing. I had moved up to Minnesota from Chicago. I didn't know anybody in the state of Minnesota other than the Minnesota tennis coach who I had competed against when I was at Northwestern. And Steve was very kind to me. He listened. He held me to high standards and told me I was just barely getting through. So he wasn't being all that easy, but I felt he cared. The other thing, he was really good about being clear, clear about his perspective on what was going on and clear about his expectations of me. And I have carried that with me forever. People that have worked with me know that I believe clarity is next to godliness. 
all the Gallup survey work says people have to know what's expected of them in order for them to meet or exceed expectations. Mm -hmm. I learned that from Steve Sanger. So those were the things that mattered. He was clear and he cared. Well, when you say he cared, that is really interesting because for a lot of people, they'll say, I mean, that's all I got to do. I have to actually care. And of course, that's a mistake because that means you're doing it because you think it's the right thing to do as opposed to it being genuine and authentic and all that. But nonetheless, I think it's actually a lesson that applies to teaching. When students believe you care, then you already won the game. Not everybody has the same platform skills. Not everybody you know, can facilitate a discussion in the same way, as long as you're reasonably competent. But if you genuinely, not because you think it's the right thing to do, but you genuinely care, students will come with you on that. And that's advice I give to new faculty. Oh, yeah, that makes uh, sense. So it's, it's really interesting that you highlighted that about Steve. From when you started to when you became CEO of Campbell Soup, how many years went by? I became CEO when I was 49. I graduated when I was 24, 25 years. 25 years. And during that time, at what point did you think, maybe right at the beginning, because you were very competitive as a tennis player, I don't know. But at what point did you think, I really could be a CEO somewhere? You know, that was the rhetoric you all used. I mean, all the people that graduate from Tuck, let's mm -hmm. You know, I want to be a CEO. I want to be a general, you know, that was what you were expected to say. And I said it just like anybody else. But when I really started to believe it was possible was not until I was into my last stop 10 years before I became CEO. And I was then on the edge of operating in what I'll call the C-suite. And I saw, you know what? All these people put their pants on one leg at a time. I can do this. In fact, I can do this in my opinion, better than they can, because I can mobilize and engage people mm -hmm. differentially. And so I started to think about it when I was at RJR Nabisco. I'd been brought in by KKR right after Barbarians at the Gate. The book had been written. It was the world's largest LBO. And I was recruited in to run this tiny division. And that was 10 years before I became a CEO of Campbell. And when I got in there and I saw, you know, I can make this work. In the fullness of time, I developed a lot of confidence. I'm not going to say right off the bat, but certainly the last five years before I became CEO, I was president of Nabisco Foods, and I saw that I could mobilize and perform at a high level, and I thought I could do more. And so that's when I really felt I could do it. So you have to have talent, let's say, but you also have confidence and belief in yourself. If you have talent and not that same belief, somebody might pluck you out and give you that chance when they see that, but then you're totally dependent on somebody else. I think that's dangerous. I think the most important thing is that you have your own foundation that you build for yourself in service to others because you're always looking to serve a community. But I think you have to build your own foundation so that as a leader, you can have the courage of your convictions. And that's essential. All the leaders you talk to in super bosses had the courage of their convictions. It's okay. hard to have courage mm -hmm. if you're not clear on your convictions. And I think every individual leader has to have spent time figuring out what do I stand for? What do I believe? And then you have to be able to put that out there and be prepared to have people disagree with you. I worked for Jim Kiltz twice. And he and I are wildly different. And I had to be able to perform to his expectations, which were quite high, but I had to be able to do it my way. And I had to be able to stand on my own two feet and champion that point of view. 
the only way I ever would have done that, the only way I did it was because I became increasingly well anchored in what that point of view was. Mm -hmm. So that when I did have to go toe to toe with a guy who could, in many ways, eat me for lunch, I could hold my own. That's a fantastic lesson. Gets back to, of course, some basic philosophy about knowing yourself, but also doing the work so that it's not a crazy idea to believe that you belong, that you're, I I bet for athletes, they have to pass through that stage too, that they truly believe that they are a player, that they deserve to be on the court or on the field. And some of course have this crazy, maybe delusions. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Maybe because of certain skills, you know, I was just talking recently, there's actually a visitor in my class, not that long ago to Mark Shapiro. He's the CEO of the Toronto Blue Jays. You know, if you're a baseball fan, you know they have three or four like superstar young 22-year-olds. I'm trying to remember if it was Craig Biggio Jr. I might get the name wrong. He told me he walks with this swagger. I mean, there's just no question. He knows that he is a baseball-eating machine, that he is a superstar. He knows that. And luckily for him, he's got the talent. And, you know, something else that Mark shared with me, I'm curious about your point of view about it. He said one thing he learned Again, this is a baseball executive, so it's different. But one thing that he learned is that once players get to double A, two levels below being, you know, in the major league team, there's a real narrowing of talent. There are, you know, the Craig Biggio Jr. type talents that stand out, but there are not very many of them. There are a handful. Most of the others, they're actually not that different. They're in the same range. And then it's a question of the mental mindset. Kind of what you said, too, that they want to get better. Are they willing to commit to it? And you've hired many, many, many people. You've supervised, you've developed, you've mentored many people. What's your take on this balance of kind of raw talent and, you know, whatever else we want to put into the kind of the mental category? I mean, for every Craig Biggio Jr., there are a hundred other players that don't have that kind of swagger that had to work at it. And I would say even Craig Biggio Jr. would be better the more he worked at it, you know? So, when we talk about our leaders born or made, I say there are very few examples that I can find where pure leaders have been born. All of them have made themselves better. So I sort of land on, it's great that you might be gifted in some way, but you can do better. And if you want to be at peak performance, you need to apply yourself and you really need to be a student of the craft of whatever you're doing, whether it's being a baseball player or an executive or a professor. And so uh, I believe the answer is, I go back to what you told your nephew, you better damn well work hard at it and be the best you can be. Bill George has this quote that sort of connects to this. You know, he talks to the students at Harvard and he says, guys, before you can change the world, you have to change yourself. And I've sort of changed that a little bit because I don't know that you change yourself, but I think you have to become the best version of yourself you can be. I go back to Carol Dweck and growth mindset. You got to be focused on growing and being the best version of yourself you can be. And I see all leaders doing that. I see very few leaders skating through and naturally being brilliant leaders who haven't worked at it. And most of us are mortal. Guys like me had to work at it. And I was lucky to be a CEO by the time I was 49. But man, I had to work for 25 years (laughs) grinding it out and get fired along the way. So- Well, you were an overnight success, 25 years in the making. (laughs) Yeah, that's really a good perspective, Doug. Yeah, when you think about sports, I mean, I'm going to ask you this because, again, you mentioned your tennis career, let's say, in college. So you obviously were, not to say you're still not, but you certainly were very competitive. And then business has been your career. 
how important is a sports background? How important is it to have come from competitive sports? I know there are CEOs that will only want to hire people like that. I mean, actually, if you go to Julian Robertson, the hedge fund guru, right? He'd only wanted to get hockey and lacrosse players that were bruising and were willing to fight with anyone else and were playing at a college level. He believed that there was something special about that. What do you think? Maybe he's right. I mean, you're creating a culture. Every enterprise has its own unique culture, and it's heavily influenced by the mindset at the top, and you want the people in the culture to be aligned with that mindset. So maybe for him, that makes sense in his sector. What I have found is that competitive sports experiences have been very good. I wrote a blog on the 13 life lessons from the game of tennis, and I can tell you it shaped my agenda. Mm-hmm. Of course, when I talk about leadership, I tell people that, look, your life story is your leadership story. And my life story was heavily influenced by the way I grew up and by tennis. And so I learned how to compete. I learned that I was the only person on the court. And so it was up to me. So when I heard the words, if it is to be, it is up to me, I got it. There was nobody coaching me while I was in the middle of a point and I had to get ready for the next point. I couldn't dwell on what happened before. I've been in millions of meetings and some people are at their best when they have to stand up in front of a group and perform under pressure. I got pretty good at that because uh, pressure, as Billie Jean King used to say, pressure is a privilege. Hmm. And you learn that when you're a competitive athlete. Pressure is a privilege. So there were a host of life lessons I learned. If you wanted to be good at something, you had to work at it. I can go on and on with this. Right, right. And uh, so I think it's helpful, but for every example, I'll pick a friend who I believe you interviewed, Sarah Matthew. Yeah, absolutely. Former uh, CEO and chairman of DNB and now chairman of Freddie Mac. And Sarah is the farthest thing in the world from an athlete. And if you got into her story, if you were lucky enough to get into her story, you would have heard that when she moved to the United States, she was virtually an Indian princess and had never worked a day in her life. And her husband went to work for Procter & Gamble. And she said, well, that sounds interesting. Maybe I should get a job. I've never had a job in my life. So she went to interview at the Consumer Response Center at Procter & Gamble. And they said, well, what have you done before? <laughs> and basically, she said, I've been an Indian princess. I've never worked a day in my life, but I'm pretty smart and I can figure it out. And at first, they look, <laughs> they were looking at her like saying, what? And she ultimately went on to run brilliantly an organization. And so you never know where people can come from. They don't have to have an athletic background, but I think it helps if they've learned some discipline along the way. Typically, you learn that by focusing in on a path that helps you thrive in community with others. I love that you mentioned Sarah Matthew. She's really a dynamo, and so you know her, oh, you know gosh, her well, she is. and became a very senior executive at P&G, starting in the way that she started. She did mention to me that, if I recall this correctly, that in India, she played basketball, but when she came to the U.S., she realized she was awful at basketball. <laughs> For one thing, the players that were around were a foot taller than she was, <laughs> and uh, when you look at her, she's not tall, let's just say. Ah, she's not that tall, no. She's yeah, maybe it's pretty five, funny. six or something, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, but she is uber competitive, and she's a seeing being. The best executives are seeing beings. They see the room. They hear what's being said, and they also hear what's being not said. And Sarah can be a seeing being in the corporate world, or is. Yeah, I agree completely with what you said. But can you elaborate a little bit on how you can tell what's not being said? 
Are there well, any I, tricks of the trade that you've picked up over the years? Well, no, it's sort of, uh, you know, I had a talk at Google a few years ago, and I'm like a dinosaur talking to this group. And they're saying, well, basically, what can I learn from you? You know, you're running old economy companies and a canned soup company. What can I learn from you? And I'm sitting there and the average age is maybe, I don't know, 32. And I say, well, how much have you learned since you were 22? Have you grown a lot in the last decade? Oh, my gosh, I've learned so much. And I say, what do you think about in the next decade? You think you'll learn as much or more? Yeah, probably. And what do you think about the decade after that? Oh, yeah, probably. I said, if you tack four of those decades on, you're going to be up where I am. I think experience is an important part of the curve here. And I'm not saying experience in a company, but experience in working with people across all kinds of situations. There's no substitute for it. You can't learn it any other way. So I'm a big believer in experience being one of the teachers that people need to have. And so I've always advocated that whenever I've recruited people, probed on experiences, not necessarily from their resume. In fact, the best headhunter I ever worked with who helped me hire, let's see, we're up to 43 people that have worked for me who have become CEOs. And he helped me with most of them. He really didn't give a hoot about that. He wanted to know their life story Mm -hmm. and what the stories were that had influenced how they approached their work. And if they played the flute in the marching band, he wanted to know about it. And if they took care of the family pet and took that dog for a walk every day, he wanted to know about it. And if they had an athletic experience that was important, he wanted to know about it. And he created this picture of this person that gave you insights into their character and their commitment to developing competence through experience that was so powerful. So I think experience is an important teacher. My other observation would be having multiple experiences in different environments serves you well. You know, you talk to Sarah, she was at Procter & Gamble for quite a while. She was in line to be a candidate to be their CFO. But she would tell you she really grew. She took off when she left P&G and went to D&B because that experience just complemented all she had learned at Procter & Gamble with all the disciplines. She took it to a whole new level at D&B. And then she went on corporate boards and took it to another level. And now she's running a $75 billion corporate board. So those experiences, I think, all coming together around her character and her competence is what's made her an effective leader. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Doug, do you remember the day it was officially announced, or not announced, but that you knew you were going to become CEO of Campbell Soup? It was hilarious, yeah. (laughs) Hilarious. It was because, uh, you know, you work your whole career to have that opportunity. I mean, it's a momentous night when you know you're going to get the offer. I didn't know I was going to get the offer. My wife was in the Southwest United States with her girlfriend in New Mexico. And here I'm at the Four Seasons in Philadelphia and the board has just voted and they've decided to extend me the offer. And I'm told they're going to announce it tomorrow morning. And I'm all by myself. I'm in a hotel room. This is the big pinnacle of your corporate career, your Mm -hmm. CEO. So I went to the mini fridge. I got a little bottle of scotch out and I had some ice. And I poured a scotch and I called my wife in New Mexico to tell her that this offer was coming. And it was a reminder to me that I was on my journey. And a lot of this journey, you're on your own. 
And when I got the offer, I was very much on my own. My wife ended up buying a newspaper in Taos, New Mexico the next day, which had a big article about me becoming CEO of Campbell Soup Company in the Taos News. How that happened, I don't know. But that was the night I received the offer. Yeah. When you talk about interviewing people by their experiences and what they did at different times, as you get older, let's say, and you have those decades of experience, it's almost like a movie you could see that can flash through your head. And what are the things that stand out? And of course, being named CEO of Campbell Soup would be one of them. I suspect there's some other pretty interesting, let's call it flashcards that come in. You know, in some movies, when they want to kind of go through somebody's life in one minute, they have little pictures and they show them doing this, they show them doing that. And I don't know that I've asked anyone this before, but now you've got me curious about what would be maybe a couple of the others Maybe being CEO of Campbell Soup, as big or momentous that was, maybe that wouldn't make the short list. Maybe it would be about your children being born or getting married. I think most people would say something like that. But professionally, what would also be there? Well, you know, I have this concept that I talk about in my books and my writing. I have this concept of the entourage of excellence, and it's the people in my life who have had a profound influence on me, okay? Profound influence. My wife's grandfather had a profound influence on me. And Stephen Covey, who I studied with when I was really lost at sea in the world of KKR, trying to be the leader I wanted to be, as opposed to just worrying about what the quarterly earnings were. Stephen Covey had a big influence. I mean, they're a collection of people. So I don't think of experiences. I think of people that had a profound influence on me. And there are some lessons there that will go back to some of the earlier things I said that really have influenced the way I look at the world. The first one is they all cared about me. But more importantly, uh, I think they had high standards for me. The language I've eventually landed on in my writing and my work is that they were tough-minded on standards of performance and they were tender-hearted with people. They were tender-hearted with me. These people, and they had the most profound influence on me in my life. You put that together. And basically what I try and do is have high standards, which is how I got along with Jim Kiltz. But I did it my way Mm -hmm. by being tenderhearted with all the people. Mm -hmm. But they knew the standards were high, arguably higher, because not only did you have to deliver, Mm -hmm. but you had to deliver in a caring way. And I wanted to have a profound influence on them. And I wanted them to have a profound influence on our performance and on their coworkers. So for me, I think of people I don't think of events, and they tend not to be about me, only about people that had this incredible impact on me. I just can remember with each of them an aha moment that was like, oh my God, Ram Sharan was one of them. Ram Sharan caught me unprepared in class one day (laughs) at the Kellogg School, and it was very embarrassing because I tried to talk my way as I hadn't done the homework. I had been working two part-time jobs and a student, and I hadn't done my work. And I was late to class. I had to sit in the front row. And Rom caught me and he let me hang myself because I talked for a while. And he said, Mr. Conan, let's talk after class. And then he went on with it. He didn't say a word. I almost got out of the class at the time. And I was had my hand on the door virtually. Mm. I was almost out the door. And he said, Mr. Conan, could you come down here? And all he said to me was, you can do better. You can do better, Mr. Conan. He didn't want to talk about it. And he did it privately. And I mean, I remember that moment. I remember the hair on the back of my neck when I got caught. It was just that right thing at the right time, tough, but caring. And it's those experiences that I remember. And those are the experiences that inform the way I try and walk in the world and lead people. Tough-minded on standards, tenderhearted with people. Those are the flashcards 
you know, I had this experience, this experience. Right. Right. That's wonderful. And what's the term you said you use about that group of people? I call them the entourage of excellence. I really came off it when the entourage, the show, HBO show on entourage. I'm old. And so I was trying to be hip. And so I came (laughs) up with entourage. Now the entourage word is dead, but that's my language. I'm telling you, when I teach, that's the most impactful conversation we ever have because we have people think about the people who had a profound influence on them. We put them in small groups. They talk about it. We bring them to the larger group. We say, what are the lessons? And then ultimately I say to them, you know what? We can study leadership until the cows come home and all the attributes. But I'm telling you, if you want to make a giant step forward, all you need to do, and here are these people that you just talked about who had the most profound influence on you in your life, By the way, through the discussion, they've all acknowledged, yeah, they had high standards for me. And they've also acknowledged that, boy, they cared about me a lot, too. Mm -hmm. I say, Mm -hmm. all you've got to do is be more like them with the people with whom you live and work. If you just do that, Mm -hmm. that will inform your leadership in a wonderfully positive way that will be very authentic because it's anchored on your experiences. So to me, it's a quick read because they connect with the concept personally. It's brought to life in their own personal experience. Right. I mean, as soon as you describe it, I could absolutely see it working as an exercise with students or with executives for that matter. Oh, I do it with everybody. Yeah. And I, I mean, you know, your nephew, you talked about mm-hmm. when you said, you know, you better give it your all or, you know, your nephew will remember that. Yeah. I he believe had, it. He, I, he will, told me that actually. Yeah, over he will the never years. forget it. And you will be part of his entourage because you have high standards and you clearly communicated to him. I care about you. I'm not trying to tell the professor how to teach, but... Well, I wouldn't be a very good professor if I wasn't constantly learning myself, would I? You mentioned your wife's grandfather. Can you tell us that story? Oh, gosh. This is a great one. Well, he was always good to me. He was the chairman of Marsha McLennan a thousand years ago. Actually, he ran the Detroit office, but that was in the golden age of Detroit with the car companies. Mm -hmm. He was always kind to me. He had been very successful. When I graduated, I didn't have much money. And right after we were married, which is shortly after graduate school, he bought me three suits. He said, Doug, you need suits. I couldn't wear that khaki suit I talked about earlier. He bought me a blue one, a brown one, and a gray one. And I also needed wingtip shoes. He took me to Brooks Brothers and to Johnson and Murphy. And he took me shopping. And nobody had ever done anything like that for me before. It was a wonderful moment. And he would call me when I was working, ask me how I was doing. But his story, which is wonderful, as a junior executive in his 30s, he called on Henry Ford, the Ford Motor Company, and tried to sell Henry the concept of group insurance, which was a new idea. It had never been done in the United States before. Marsha McLennan was pioneering this new concept of group health insurance. And Henry wouldn't talk to him. And Ford already had their business, or they had part of Ford's business. Henry retired, and R.T., called Etzel, who he knew, mm-hmm. and said, Etzel, I've been trying to talk to your dad about this forever. This is a great idea. We ought to talk about it. Etzel said, can you come over to the office? Let's talk today. Doesn't happen that way anymore. Yeah. So RT went over there and Etzel said, this sounds great. I'll take it. On a handshake, the deal was done. RT had just sold the Ford Motor Company, the largest group insurance contract in the history of the world on a handshake. He went back to the office and he said, well, bring back the paperwork tomorrow. He went back to the office and discovered the math was wrong on the handshake deal he had just done with Edsel Ford to Ford's detriment. And so 
The next day, he went back to Edsel with the right math and said, Edsel, you know, I am thrilled that you want to do this. I honestly believe it's the right thing, but I made a mistake in the math. I never expected we were going to move so quickly on this. This is the right math. If you want somebody else to manage this account, I think Marsha McLennan is right. If you want someone else to manage this, you should have them manage it and whatever. And Edsel told him, you know, RT, I don't want anybody else to manage this. You made a mistake. You came, you owned it, and you pledged to make it right. And to this day, Marsha McLennan still has the Ford Motor account. You can Google it and find it. I want to say he sold $150 million of group life insurance in 1939 dollars. Wow. Uh, and that's a crazy number. And so, but I learned that, you know, again, people put their pants on one leg at a time. He made a mistake. He owned it and it worked out and he stayed on the high road. And to this day, I tell executives, the high road is the only road. That's my RT Johnson experience. And obviously I'll never forget that. No. No, and I suspect a bunch of my listeners might not forget it either. It's a great story and meaningful, particularly meaningful because it's family. You know, even if it wasn't, the story is a great story. I'm wondering whether there's a CEO out there, whether it's in America or elsewhere, that you really like. And there are a lot of famous CEOs. Maybe you like a lot of them, especially in Silicon Valley with people like Tim Cook and Elon Musk are in the news all the time, and maybe Jeff Bezos, and maybe they're the ones. But I'm wondering if there's one whether we know about him or her or not, and why it is that you think they're special. Well, I'm going to give you three names, and they're names of people who are somewhat old economy CEOs, but of amazing companies. Mm -hmm. I think these old economy companies have had to pivot in ways with all their scale and everything to be relevant and current, that it's just a heavy lift. And so the three names I would give you would be two you know for sure, one is Indra Nui. The other one is Alex Gorsky from J&J. And the third one is Steve Collis of Amerisource Bergen, which right now is about a $160 billion pharmaceutical distribution company. Indra Nui, I admire. I interviewed her the other day on one of my things. She's a longtime friend. And I admire her because of the way she pioneered as a woman in a real dog-eat-dog culture at Pepsi at the time. And she took the entire company to higher ground. People thought it's a sugar water and snack company. And she transformed it to be a, you know, her theme was performance with purpose. And she took the entire enterprise to higher ground. She created great value for shareholders, but she created a whole new engagement model for all other stakeholders. So I admire that. Another one is Alex Gorsky at J&J. Alex he spent his whole career to become chair, not whole career, but a long time at J&J, became chairman and CEO. And then when the pandemic hit, he said, I'm going to step down, which he did. And I'm going to run our pandemic response team. Is that what he did? Yeah. Really? I didn't know that. Wow. And so he put other people in charge of running J&J. And he said, we're going to lead the pandemic response effort. And obviously, he was still involved in orchestrating things. But that was his primary job. And he led it with incredible tenacity, but incredible wisdom. And, you know, here's a guy who said, my talents right now, I know J&J, I have talents for getting things done. We will serve society and J&J in the long run better if I leverage my talents over here. Tremendous respect for him. The last one is Steve Collis, who's the chairman CEO of Amerisource Bergen. 
a pharmaceutical distribution company that's become a, a huge company. And they are incredibly now purpose-driven. And he's been the Baron CEO of the year, I want to say, two times in the last five years or something. What I love about I was on his board. I stepped on because I decided after 25 years of board work, enough was enough. But he was a brilliant CEO because he understood that shareholders mattered, but that the world was moving to a total stakeholder model, not a total shareholder model. And so he's built an organization that's responsive to all stakeholders. And I've seen him do that. And I saw it up close because I was in the boardroom. And I have tremendous admiration for him doing that in some pretty messy situations. Those are the three that come to mind. Those are great examples. Thanks for sharing that. Doug, we're just about out of time. I have maybe time for one last question. It's my favorite closing question. In this case, you've kind of answered it in two or three or four different ways because you've been providing a lot of advice along the way. So it's an advice question, but maybe the twist is that it's advice to yourself when you were young, when you were, say, 21 years old. So you're still Doug Conant, but a very different stage of life. So if you could imagine going back in time and leaning over to the 21-year-old Doug and saying, you know, if there's one bit of advice I have for you, it's one thing you should do or not do or think about or think differently, what would that be? Listen carefully. Listen carefully. I talk in a lot of my work about lead by listening, and I talk about listen to what's said and listen to what's not said. I referred to that earlier. I find that my effectiveness in every situation improves if I'm a good listener, if I'm very attentive with it. I serve people better because I better understand their situation. They appreciate that I'm earnestly trying to hear them. And then we move forward in a way that's a higher order of effectiveness. At the beginning, all I did was listen. I didn't act on it. And I didn't listen as attentively as I could have. And I have to remind myself of this to this day because I'm sort of at a stage where I've heard a lot and I'm ready to share, you can tell. But when I'm put in a situation, I just took over as chair of an organization, nonprofit, the Center for Higher Ambition Leadership in Boston. And I'm learning once again that I have to be a good listener. And even though I've been on the board for 10 years, I haven't really listened well enough. So now I'm, again, trying to lead by listening. That's the one thing I commend that to anyone. Yeah. And by reinforcing it, by reminding yourself that even now it's a really good thing to do is a lesson in and of itself. Even when we know what we should be doing, even though even when we've got a track record that's decades long, it's easy to lose track of some things. It might be intuitive to you at this stage. But as you just said, you could have listened even better. So I think that's pretty important. For me, that's what speaks to me anyway. And that I'm better when I do it than when I don't. So Doug, thanks so much for being with me and our listeners on the SIDCast. A fun conversation. I know I could have really gone a lot longer with lots of other things to talk about, but an hour has flown by and we'll wrap it up and maybe we'll do it again another time. Thank you so much, Doug. Fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I'm really excited to be bringing you season three and really appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website, www.thesidcast.com. Or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. 
If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.